while you uh, while you get situated, I want to just uh, hit real quick a couple of a couple of kind of information related uh, housekeeping issues, if you will. The first is that uh, don't don't get caught on the different service times next week. Uh, if you're a you know an eleven thirty for lifer. Um, and you show up at 11.30 next week, we will be at the tail end of that service or approaching the tail end of that service. Um, so 9 and 11 in the morning next week, and then if, if you'd rather pref- you'd prefer to come in the evening, it's 4 and 6. So 9 o'clock and 11, not our normal service times next Sunday morning. So don't get, don't get caught by that. And the second is last week, uh, as we're wrapping up the Bible Initiative, we talked about some resources that we wanted to make available uh, just pointing, pointing people in the direction of good study Bibles and resources for them to use as they continue to uh, immerse themselves, yourselves, in the Word next year. And so there's a table out in the lobby of study Bibles for adults and for different uh, age ranges of children and for students. Um, when you go out the doors toward the lobby, there's a table right on the left there. We encourage you to, to take a look at those, um, be able to kind of flip through them and see, see what they're like. Obviously, there are great resources outside of the ones that we have uh, on display out there, but those are ones that we trust and that we think are great. Um, so feel free to check those out uh, if you want to. This morning, we are going to, we're going to start a two-week look uh, into a couple of um, very specific pieces of the Christmas story, and that is through the lens of these angelic, uh, announcements that uh, Matthew and Luke both record. And so there are actually three of them. In Matthew, there's uh, uh, an interaction between Joseph and an angel. In Luke chapter 1, Mary interacts with the angel Gabriel. And then in Luke chapter 2, the angels appear to the shepherds out in the field. And so we're going to anchor ourselves in the book of Luke. And this morning, we'll look at Luke chapter 1 and Gabriel's uh, announcement to Mary of what was about to happen, and then next week we'll look at Luke chapter 2 and the angels with the shepherds out in the field. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to Luke 1, we're going to be in verses 26 to 38. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll dive in. God, thanks for this morning, for the chance to come and God, to worship you, to spend time together as a church family, uh, praising your name, uh, exalting the gospel. God, I pray this Christmas season that we would take uh, a long, slow look at the importance of the birth of Christ. And that as we do so, we would see it uh, through a long lens that sees not only Jesus' birth, but also his life and ministry and his death on the cross, his resurrection, that sees it all the way to his return, God. Lord, I pray that we would grasp the reality that Christ's birth, as uh, earth-shattering as it was, gains its ultimate significance through his death and resurrection. God, as we celebrate and reflect on and think about Christmas, Lord, would you help us to keep the entire uh, stretch of Christ's life and work uh, in mind. 
God, would you keep that at the forefront of our hearts? God, would you help us to celebrate and rejoice in the hope and the joy of Christmas and to do so in light of the entirety of the gospel? God, would you begin that for us here this morning? Uh, We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over the course of the year, I feel like I've been a broken record saying the following statement. And that's that the story of the Bible, the narrative of Scripture, is the story of God redeeming humanity from sin. That all of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is one unified story that reveals the glory of God in reconciling sinful humanity to the holiness of himself. And that the high point of that story is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And these angelic pronouncements that we're going to look at over the next two weeks give us a very specific view into that story as it directly pertains to Jesus's birth. And so I'm going to read um, Luke 1, 26 down to 38, and then we're going to break it into kind of three pieces there in that, in that small section. One of them is the arrival of the angel Gabriel. Then there's his announcement of exactly what's going to happen, and then finally Mary's response. So let's read the whole thing as one, and then we'll separate it into some pieces and, and uh, see what it is that the Lord uh, can teach us. In the midst of this. So here's what it says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be or engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Uh, in, in kind of the run of you know, regular Christmas buildup, I realize that you might be here with a week to go uh, to Christmas and you might have a million things on your mind. Plans that you still need to do, presents that you still need to purchase, final arrangements and those kinds of things. So if you get nothing else out of the next two weeks, catch the next statement. And it is this, God is not a character in your story. He is the author of all history. God is not some minor figure, some subplot to what is going on in your life. He's not in addition that at some point maybe you start going to church and you kind of bring God into the fold or the run of what you have happening in the course of your life. He's the author of all history. He is the main character of everything that's happened since before the beginning of recorded time and everything that will happen until the end, for all eternity. He is the author. He is the centerpiece. He is the main character. He is what is driving everything forward. You 
are the side character. You are the subplot. And at Christmas, maybe more so than any other time, we have a tendency to become very kind of self or human centric in things. And it's not necessarily bad. So hear me say that. Right? At Christmas, if you're a parent, you become very consumed with making sure that the Christmas experience is a wonderful one for your child. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. If you're in a relationship, we oftentimes become very consumed with making sure that the Christmas experience is a great one for our significant other or for our spouse. If you are a child, it's pretty easy to think that Christmas morning is all about you and what happens to be under the tree. If you're a grandparent, it's easy to get wrapped up in the gathering of all of the family and getting everybody into one place and spending time all together. And those are wonderful things, but they're inherently human-focused. When Christmas is inherently not. It's about God, beginning to end. The entirety of the nativity story, of the Christmas story in the Bible, is about God. Actually, look at the way this even begins. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God. He initiates. He starts. It's God who begins to unfold this. He sends an angel to Mary in Nazareth. In fact, he sends Gabriel. Gabriel uh, is making his second appearance in the book of Luke already. God sent him to Elizabeth and Zechariah in Jerusalem to tell them that they were going to have a son who would be the forerunner of Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He was sent into kind of the center of the Jewish religious world, if you will. Right there in the temple, in Jerusalem. That's where Zechariah and Elizabeth are. That's where the angel interacts with Zechariah. And then the next place that the angel Gabriel is sent is way out into the sticks, like Podunk, Galilee, from the center of Jewish religious life out to the very outskirts of what would kind of be uh, the Jewish nation at the time. God is authoring in both places. Very little here is actually said about Mary. About Joseph, we at least find out that he's of the house of David. But Mary, we get virtually no biographical information about, other than the fact that she's a virgin. In fact, Luke goes so far as to make sure we see that three times. He says it twice, that Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be or engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And then a little bit later, Mary states it herself in verse 34. Three times we get that biographical piece about Mary. The only other information that we get about her comes in the statement that Gabriel makes to her in verse 28. The angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. If you're uh, a woman here this morning, don't read that and think, well, why would they just totally pass over her? Does she not matter? Joseph's not even present in the story. How come he gets at least a little bit of biographical information? I'll tell you why. Luke has zeroed in on the most important thing about who Mary is as an individual. And it is entirely in relation to the Lord. It's not ultimately her background. 
It's not some detailed explanation of her character. The most important thing for Luke to communicate to us about Mary is that she's favored by the Lord. And I don't usually like jump into this kind of stuff because mostly I think everybody except for myself probably finds it horribly boring, but it's worthwhile here to talk about verb construction. And so we're going to take a second to do that. Three, three words from Gabriel. Greetings, favored woman. Favored is the verb. And it's really important to note that it's completely passive. It's passive in English and it's passive in Greek. Favored, it's given to her. That's not something that she came up with herself. It's not something she did to earn. It's that God graciously looked upon her and favored her. No piece of this alludes to Mary having done anything to bring about or earn the favor of the Lord. It's just been given to her. In fact, that's the most important thing for us to know about Mary. And it's actually a statement about God. That he graciously looked upon her with favor. By the grace of God, Mary's about to step into a functional, practical, eternally significant relationship with the Lord. It's his initiation. It's his work. He sent Gabriel to have this interaction. He gave his favor to Mary. And that's the most important thing for us to keep in mind. It's what defines her in this moment, and it is what has defined her from that moment forward. But I want to keep going, because the next sentence is instructive as well. Greetings, favored woman, says Gabriel. The Lord is with you. So not only is she favored, but there's this statement that the Lord is with her. And that is a really powerful statement from an Old Testament perspective. Mary and Joseph, faithful Jewish individuals, they would have had this Old Testament knowledge of Scripture kind of running for them in the background of their mind. And to hear the phrase, favored woman, the Lord is with you, would have brought to mind the fact that that statement is used numerous times in the Old Testament, always in the same context, every single time. It's directed toward a person who's been chosen by God for a specific purpose in the unfolding of his redemptive plan. Let me give you a few examples. It's used about Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 28. He's on the run from an enemy, and the Lord says to him, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. It's used about Jacob in Genesis 28, 15. He also is hiding from an enemy, and the Lord says, Look, I am with you and will watch over you. It's used about Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12. Moses is nervous about appearing before Pharaoh and pronouncing these kind of judgments that God wants him to go before Pharaoh and pronounce. And the Lord comforts him by saying, I will be with you. It's used about David, that the Lord is with him. It's a statement of reassurance that there will be divine resources and protection and as a human undertakes partnering with God toward God's desired ends. So this angel arrives out of the blue, shows up to Mary and says, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. And look at her response. She was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting it could be. In any incident of human and angelic interaction in the Bible, there's usually this sense of terror that overtakes the human. 
that's typically because of just the physical appearance of the angel. It is just overwhelmingly frightening, and they're terrified in the presence of the angel. In this case, between Mary and Gabriel, she is troubled by the statement that he makes. The Lord is with you. With her understanding as a faithful Jewish individual, it would have immediately raised the question, why in the world does he need to be with me? What is about to happen? What do I need protection or reassurance from? Why is his presence so important to me? And so the angel looks back and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Gabriel reassures her, again, you have found favor with God. God's not a character. He's not a sideshow to what you've got going on in your life. He's the author. He is driving it forward. He is the one moving all of human history forward, which has to include your particular story, my particular story. Let's go on. That's kind of the arrival there. And now Gabriel makes an announcement, starting in verse 31. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And then Mary responds, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Gabriel makes uh, a number of promises or prophecies about this child that Mary is going to give birth to. In fact, there are six of them. The first is that she will give birth to a child. The second is that it will be a son. He will be named Jesus. He will be great and called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of David, and he will reign forever. Six promises that Gabriel makes about this child that Mary is about to conceive, carry, and give birth to. And Mary's got one question. How? How is that possible? Before we like really dive into that, picture with me. You're on a, you're on a road trip. You're driving from here to Los Angeles. You're somewhere in the middle of Kansas when you run out of gas and realize that there's nothing for like 10,000 miles. Your car is on the side of the road. You're pacing back and forth there trying to figure out exactly what you're going to do when an angel appears and says to you, greetings, favored one. You're going to take this medicine and deliver it to a person and it's going to save their life. They're 200 miles away. You would think to yourself, wow, that is amazing. But the car's out of gas. So... How's this going to happen? Right? It wouldn't, that's not a question of disbelief. It's not a question of, I don't believe what you're saying. It's actually, no, okay, I believe you. Explain to me how that's going to happen. How is this possible? It would be hearing that statement and thinking to yourself, wow, how? That's the moment Mary has, right? You're going to conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus, and all of these marvelous things will be true about him. And Mary says, hold on, I understand some things about conceiving children. And step one hasn't happened. So how? I believe you, but how? How is that possible? One of the great mysteries of following Christ, of placing your faith in Jesus, is that as you read the Bible, it becomes very, very clear that God is 100% the author. 
that he is sovereign, he's moving history forward, and yet people 100% have a role. And both of those things are happening at the same time. And how do you reconcile those? In fact, that question has been something that I have thought about endlessly since the day I put my faith in Jesus and started to think about who God is and how he operates. And the reality is that God's authorship and human agency work hand in hand. And I can't explain exactly how it works, but I can tell you with 100% confidence that God is absolutely sovereign. And I can tell you with 100% confidence that he absolutely uses faithful, humble, obedient human beings to move his will forward. The tension of that is difficult. And I can't totally explain it in the same way that I can't totally explain the way Jesus is 100% God. I know that's true. And yet 100% man. There is a tension there. And yet they're both factual. The Bible makes it clear. All of human history, God is the author. And yet he has written and is writing the glorious story of redemption through the faithful obedience of those who trust his power of those who are willing to partner with him for his glory. That's a sovereign choice of the Lord. He could do everything entirely on his own without the involvement of humanity at all. And if you kind of doubt that, go back and reread Genesis 1 and 2. He can do it all without any help. But instead... The normative work of the Lord is to use those who are humbly and faithfully submitted to him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says it this way, The eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are completely his. Your translation might say, The eyes of the Lord range over the earth, looking for those whose hearts are completely his. Don't miss the mixture here of divine authorship and human agency. Mary is going to conceive, carry, and give birth to a child. She's going to name him Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his Father, and he will reign forever. There's this intertwining of God's work and Mary's work. If you're a woman in here and you've given birth to a child, you probably noticed that Gabriel skipped over a nine-month period in his explanation. You will conceive and give birth. To which Mary said, pause, there's some time there. Right? How? How does this work? Carrying and giving birth to a child requires human effort. The conception is going to be entirely of the Lord. The text tells us that he will be born and will be Great. Not that Mary's going to have to do anything to make him great. Not that Jesus will be great after he's done X, Y, and Z. He will be born and just be great because he's the son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father, father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's a mixture there. It requires both. There's a work of the Lord And there's this humble agency, this humble willingness by Mary to be used. There's an arrival, there's this announcement, and now a response. Mary says, how is this possible? 
Verse 35. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting him and him alone for your salvation, if you're wrestling through what it looks like to walk out life in relationship with the Lord, then you'll understand this tension. I want something like this to be true in my life, that God could come to me with something almost impossible for me to conceive, and then I would have that sort of I'm the Lord's servant kind of response, and yet at times I battle against that, because what would that cost me? What would I have to do in order to make that happen? What would it require of me? But as followers of Jesus, we should long for the glory of the Lord to overshadow us. That's how Gabriel says this is going to happen. That's how God authors his story amidst human agency. The glory, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how faithful men and women throughout Scripture and throughout history have been used by God in the middle of his global redemptive work. They've been overshadowed by the power and the glory and the majesty and the might of God. In fact, that word power is dunamis in Greek. It appears 120 times in the New Testament, and it gets translated different ways. Sometimes it's power, sometimes might, sometimes work, sometimes strength. Other times it's translated miracle. When the dunamis of God overtakes an individual in the biblical narrative, the world gets to see a clear picture of the greatness and the holiness of God. The world gets to see a picture of his glory. And maybe the easiest way to think about this, the clearest biblical example, is Moses. God says, you're going to go before Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him fill-in-the-blank thing. And then one of these unthinkable plagues is going to come upon the country. And when Pharaoh calls Moses back into his presence during one of those plagues. You know what Pharaoh never says? Moses, you're so powerful. Turn it off. No, he says, make your God stop this. He's totally overshadowed. It's not about Moses in that moment. Moses knows that. Pharaoh knows that. Everybody knows that. It's about the Lord. It's about Yahweh. That's what it means for the power, for the glory of the Most High to overshadow someone. That you become a conduit by which the world doesn't look at you, but looks through you to God. That's what happens here for Mary. Gabriel says this is how it's going to work. And then Mary ends with this incredible statement in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. If you were to just line that sentence up in Greek and translate it word for word across, it would say, Behold the slave of the Lord, may it be to me as you have said. Behold the slave of the Lord. Mary accepts her role as an instrument in God's hand and she just treasures it. May it be to me as you have said. When we recognize that God is the author and we accept our role in His story, 
and we trust His glory to not only work through us, but to overshadow us, then we can just wholeheartedly submit ourselves to Him. And may it be to me, as you have said, becomes the daily cry of our heart. Often at this time of year, not only are we looking forward to Christmas and thinking about um, the joy of that time, but we also get really optimistic about the next year. Right? We start thinking about 2018. And regardless of how hard your previous year has been or how joyful your previous year has been, you start thinking that when the calendar kind of flips over to January 1, God is going to punch a reset button in your life and everything is going to be great. We have eternal optimism when it becomes close to a new year. And yet the reality is that God does not function by our you know, 365-day calendar. He doesn't work on the same timetable that we do. He is not thinking that January 1st is going to come around and he's going to put everybody back at neutral. The seasons in your life are long. Sometimes they're long and painful. Sometimes they're long and really joyful. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you recognize God as not some sub-character in your story, but as the author of your story, if you're willing to be overshadowed by his glory, then regardless of the kind of emotional reality of that season of life, you can say wholeheartedly, may it be to me as you have said. That's the place that as followers of Christ, we should be trying to get to. It doesn't mean that in a really hard time of life that everything's happy. It doesn't mean that we forget the emotional reality of the things that we're going through, but it means that we have this deep abiding trust that would say, behold the slave of the Lord. May it be to me as you have said. I think it's important as we close this to just ask a few questions, and they're questions that I think relate to everybody in the room, follower of Christ or not. Three parts to the story, this arrival, an announcement, and a response. Luke wants us to be very clear at the, very, at the arrival of Gabriel that the most important thing about Mary is not her character or her history. The most important thing about Mary is how she's defined in relationship to the Lord. He's bestowed favor and grace in his presence upon her. In fact, in all of the gospel texts, that's basically the full extent that we get to know about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And yet at the same time, it tells us everything we need to know. In fact, I would go so far as to say it tells us everything we need to know about anyone. So my first question is, are you trying to define yourself some other way? Are you trying to define yourself by something other than your relationship with the Lord? And I'm willing to be vulnerable enough to stand up here and say that this might be the primary struggle of my relationship with the Lord is that if you gave me 30 seconds in front of a group of people to stand up and introduce myself, Tim Fritzen, favored by the Lord, walking in relationship with him, probably wouldn't be the first thing I would say unless I had written it out and scripted it for myself and I read the statement. My heart longs to run towards something else that I would stand up and define myself by saying, hi, I'm Tim Fritzen, I'm the pastor at Liberty Christian Fellowship, or that I would stand up and define myself by a hobby or a talent or an ability or some other relationship, rather than standing up and saying, I've got one sentence to introduce myself, and the most important thing you could possibly ever know about me is in relationship to the Lord. 
You might be here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, which means you have no choice but to try to build your identity on something else. And I promise you, that bubble will eventually pop. Whether it's a bank account, a career, your relationships with other people, an ability that you have, some sort of desire that you chase and seek to fulfill all the time, that can only get so big. It can only support so much before it will eventually pop and leave you feeling totally lost and identityless. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I think the same question applies. Do you define yourself by what is ultimately most important, and that's your relationship to Jesus Christ? Or is there something in your heart that's tugging you to define yourself by something different? On the one hand, it looks like Mary gets this unbelievable slight. (laughs) No description. The mother of Jesus. And we get nothing about her, and yet we got everything we needed. Favored by the Lord. His presence with her. Gabriel lays out for Mary exactly what's going to happen. He lays out what the story is that God is authoring. And she accepts that role. My Second question to you this morning would be, do you know and have you accepted the role that God has called you to? God is still doing something in the world today. His redemptive plan is still being written, and it includes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And accepting that he's the boss and the author of that, have you submitted yourself to your role in the continued outworking of his plan to redeem people the world over? That doesn't mean that you've got to be a foreign missionary who packs up everything and heads to a country to share the gospel. It doesn't mean that you've got to have some sort of interaction with an angel that tells you exactly what's going to happen in your life. And it doesn't mean that you need to have had a moment where you feel like God spoke audibly into your life. I know plenty of people in this church who would say something like, I'm a teacher and I believe wholeheartedly that God has called me to share the love of Christ to the students that I work with every day. I know that there are mothers in this church who stay home with their kids, and they would say, I can tell you wholeheartedly that God has called me to invest the gospel deeply within the confines of my home and not to pursue a career. There would be other women in this church who would say the opposite. I believe that God's called me to do the exact same thing in my home, but he's also called me into this career field and to share the gospel in that place. The question is, have you pursued that with the Lord? Have you wrestled through it? And then, have you submitted to it? Which ties into the third question. What is the longing in your heart? What is that spot inside of you that's always kind of calling out something? Is it, God, I want to shine. I want to be seen. I want to be recognized in -in fill-in-the-blank sort of way. Or is it, God, overshadow me? Maybe the best thing we could do over the next eight days between now and Christmas is just constantly pray the following prayer. May it be to me as you have said. God, may it be to me as you have said. Over and over and over. That that would become the deepest longing in our heart. God, overshadow me. May it be to me as you have said. 
when we've truly come to a place where we recognize the authorship of God and we see ourselves in relationship to him, we submit ourselves to his calling, then we've come to a place where the glory of the Lord can truly overshadow us. Then we've come to a place where we can be signposts that don't point to ourselves but point through us to the glory of the Lord. God's revealing glory becomes evident to the entire world when we allow him to work through us in that sort of way. And Mary is a wonderful example of that, but ultimately she gives birth to the perfect example of that. Mary's statement there to Gabriel, may it be to me as you have said, is such a wonderful encapsulation of Jesus' prayer in the garden right before he would go to the cross. Your will, not mine. Mary, 33 years before that moment, sums up Jesus' exact sentiment hours before he got crucified. Take this cup from me, yet your will be done, not mine. As followers of Jesus, we should long in any season, in any circumstance, to be so overshadowed by the glory of God, that we confidently say, may it be to me as you have said. We're going to close our time in worship this morning. The team's going to come back up. And this first song we're going to sing is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's a Christmas song, certainly. It's about the birth of Christ. But really read and think about the lyrics while we sing, because it's about much more than Christ's one-time birth. It's about Jesus coming in a continual sort of way and bringing his kingdom. It's about Christ's growing coming in our hearts and in our lives. And so we're going to sing that and a couple other songs that are familiar and Christmassy, but I promise you they're about so much more than just the birth of Jesus. They're about the greatness of God in authoring the story of human redemption. And we're going to close this morning with the song, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. O Come, All Ye Faithful joyful and triumphant that we would come to Christ with hearts that long to say may it be to me as you have said let's stand up and sing